0: Amen. And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 51 or look at one of the sheets. It'll be really helpful because we're going to look at the text and pull out a lot and uh, we'll we'll draw some things out. So that'll be helpful. And as you do, I want you, uh, if you can recall 1983... (laughs) You can think back to the fall of 1983, and this might shock you, but our country was actually embroiled in a political scandal. And so during the fall of 1983, uh, Dr. Thomas Rozier uh, wrote a pretty famous article in the Chicago Sun-Times. He was a reporter who was covering um, a scandal in the uh, House of Representatives. And the title of the article is, There is one thing worse than sin. There's one thing worse than sin. So when you think about it, I wonder, what could he be talking about? What sin? What thing is worse than sin? And he had been covering for a couple months... Uh, Starting July 14th, 1983, the House Ethics Committee uh, publicly censured two representatives, Dan Crane, Republican from Illinois, and uh, Jerry Studs, uh, Democrat from Massachusetts. Um, They were brought for formal censure. And what's intriguing is that both were um, brought forward publicly uh, for very similar transgressions, but their responses were polar opposite. So both men, um, now I want. To, we have a lot of little ears, so I want to be sensitive, not to place you parents in um, uncomfortable conversations this afternoon. So I am going to speak euphemistically, but I will need, you will have to put the, connect the dots. But both men were accused of inappropriate relationships with uh, 17-year-old congressional pages. So congressional pages are high school kids who come for their senior year for like uh, interns at Congress and the House now in d c at the time the age of consent was sixteen uh, so i mean w- what they had done technically was legal, but at the time it was there was kind of un specified breach of Congressional committee ethics. Uh, Any um, relationship between a member of the House of Representatives, this is from the the, uh, House of Representatives and a a congressional page, or any type of advance by a member to that page represents a serious uh, violation and breach of duty. And so the two were brought forward on July 20th. They opened it up publicly to votes of censure and opened it up for debate and brought the evidence to accuse the two different senators. But their two responses to July 20th were um, exact opposite. Senator Crane stood before his colleagues in the House of Representatives. He had admitted to his affair tearfully. He stood and admitted that he had broken both the laws of God and the laws of man. He cast a vote in the affirmative for his censure and for his um, to face whatever uh, Uh, judgment the adjudicating bodies thought appropriate. Senator Studs took the opposite view. Uh, It came out that the 17 year old for him was a boy. He used it to come out. He accused his accusers of hatred and bigotry. He defended the relationship because it was consensual, it was mutual, and it was voluntary. And he said the only thing he would admit were certain errors of judgment. He voted against the uh, censure and then in protest, him and several of his colleagues turned their back on the house as a way of uh, showing their protest to the, to the procedure. And in Rozier's article, he wanted to uh, kind of unravel or, or use it as illustration and think, all right, why? Because in some sense we have two people, very similar situations and polar opposite responses. Why? What would cause the different responses? He said, what was the different philosophies that each man held? And then talking about um, Senator Crane, he says, well, I think his philosophy teaches that there is one thing worse than sin, and that is the denial of sin. The denial is what makes forgiveness impossible. So this question: Is there one thing worse than sin? It's the denial of it, the refusal to admit, to own. In our text this morning, we see a very similar public official, public person, whose uh, misdeeds are about to come out into the public, and we have an illustration. All right? What is he going to do? How is he going to respond? And what we're going to see is that there is a process that you can go through. That no matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how bad you have been broken, or how bad you have broken others, there is a process that you can go through where you can have your life redeemed. And it can be restored. And it can be renewed. There is a process, and it's, it's called real repentance, And it can bring about life-changing, character-forming, freedom-producing renewal. And so we're going to look at this morning, what is that process? Because all fall and then um, throughout Christmas and next year, our key theme is we want you to experience the transforming power of the gospel. And what we looked at in the end of the summer and the first part of the fall is that if you're going to experience the gospel's power, there's a couple things you need to know. You need to know you've been created in love and called for a purpose. And then our our Florida version of winter series is called uh, Bound and Broken. And what we're looking at is the way what sin, if you're going to experience the transforming power of the gospel, you have to know how sin is trying to bind you and break you. And last couple of weeks, we looked at Genesis 3, how it came in, how sin strikes, and the different areas that it breaks. It breaks our relationship with God, ourself, others, and the world. And so now the question is, how can we start to put back together again those relationships that have been broken? And Psalm 51 is the classic place. Where you can go and see, all right, what does it mean when my relationship with God has been broken? How can it be restored again and made whole? So the first thing I want us to do is just kind of walk through the passage so you can see the movement and flow. And then we'll take a couple minutes and just draw out some of the lessons about that process, about how we can, how we can go through the process of renewal, restoration, restoration. Healing. So first, let's pick up and just kind of move through. So if you've seen your bulletins, kind of the movement of, of the poem. So verse one and two, it sets up the reality of the relationship that's broken. So have mercy on me, O God, or or be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions or my rebellions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity or my, my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. So, one and two is setting up. All right, here's, here's the problem. Here's the situation. There's a relationship that's been broken. And it's beautifully constructed about how you have a threefold confession about who God is, and then a threefold confession about who I am and what I need and what's wrong with me. So, notice who God is. He's asking, Be gracious or be merciful to me, O God. A call for grace, God's unmerited, undeserved goodness. Same word that comes to Noah, that Noah found favor. You cry out to for grace and mercy, you're crying out to a king. David knows he's not the king. He's standing before the real king of creation, and he's asking for mercy. So as, as a judge, as a king, be gracious to me. But then according to your steadfast love... He appeals to God's steadfast love. That's one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word hesed, And it's how it's translated agape in the Septuagint. This is a type of, of love that's, that's committed, that's unchangeable. It's, it's the love of, of the covenant that I make a commitment to you. It's often used of the marriage covenant, commitment, that for richer or poorer, for sickness and health, till death do us part, uh, I am yours. So the first is I'm recognizing you are the king that I stand before in judgment, but I also am going to call that you are my my covenant Lord who we've been united in in a, a marriage type relationship. And then notice the third thing, according to your abundant mercy or tender mercies or lavish mercies. um, this This is a word crying out that highlights kind of the emotional, passionate love. This is often a word used for parents, uh, especially mothers, when they see their child hurting and crying. And it's this overwhelming affection. And so see what David's doing. He said, this is who you are. You are the righteous, holy judge. I know. I need mercy. But we are also in a covenant relationship, like like a spouse. But then I am also like a wounded, broken child. And I need your compassion. So that's who God is. And notice who he is or his situation blot out my transgressions or my rebellion blot it out I, it, this is a legal transgression rebellion i have committed an act of treason and i am brought before the nation's judge and all the all the nations will look and and judge and there's nothing i can do to defend myself and i need you to take my record and just erase it blot it out so i have a legal case against me but then Wash me from my guilt. My, I need to be washed. Not only am I legally in trouble, but I'm also morally in trouble. I'm dirty. I'm stained. And I need to be clean externally, morally. But then it goes even deeper than that. Look, cleanse me internally cleanse me from my sin so this is setting up the problem and then notice how it moves three through six this is his reality for i know my rebellion i know it and my sin is ever before me this is not like before me like in front of it's always in my mind i can't shake it it's it's always hanging over me against you and you only have i sinned and done what was evil not did I, do, not, did I make a few unfortunate mistakes? I have done what's evil in your sight, so that you would be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You are the king sitting in ju- and I have no case I can bring. All I can do is cry for mercy. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then now notice, here's the center, 7 through 12. Here's his request. And just listen to all the things he's requesting. He's just firing them off. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. She rapid fire. Purge me, wash me, let me, let thee, hide, blot out, create, renew, cast me not, take not, restore, uphold. And then now what will that do? What's the result? Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. We will gather together. Deliver me. I need to be delivered of my blood guiltiness. O God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise And then it concludes the relationship is restored. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Isn't that a strange way to end? And then there's going to be bulls offered on your altar. What's the point of that? Actually, that gets at the very thing Bob was talking about. The point is food. The point is the barbecue. There's two different sacrifices he highlights. The burnt offerings or the whole offerings, the consecration offerings that lift up. And then the bulls. Those are the sacrifices of fellowship. That's the barbecue. That's the whole point. The whole point is when sin comes in, relationship has been fractured. And now you can't feast together. And so relationship has to be restored so we can feast together again. And so how does that happen? Let's look a couple things at the, at the process. If you're going to experience a transforming power of, of repentance, first, you have to see who you really are and who you really hurt. Look what David does here. It's just remarkable. Do you notice all the me and my language? Blot out my transgressions. Wash me, my iniquity. Cleanse me, my sin, my transgression, my sin. He The first step is you have to own your own sin. And then he gets at, you know, the kind of the strange phrase, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. He says, look, behold, behold. You know, what's he doing there? At first it sounds kind of strange. Is David doing a little blame shifting? Like, behold, I was brought forth in, in iniquity. My mom, if you had a mom like mine, you'd understand. I remember reading this in our, our Sunday school class at Corn Creek Baptist Church in sweet Anita Rowlett. When we read this, she says, oh, somehow it's always mama's fault. <laughs> That's not quite the point. What well, the point that David's getting at is he's highlighting the doctrine of original sin or the doctrine of a total depravity. And the idea is that uh, you um, it's not you sin and then that makes you a sinner. It's that you are a sinner and out of that flows sin. We sin because we're sinners. He's getting that at the heart in every one of us is the seed that given the right circumstances, the right situation, the right watering can grow into any type of sinful act. You know, a couple ways you can think about this. Um, one of the great masterpieces in church history is St. Augustine's Confessions. And so most, you know, people kind of read this like in literature 101, but it is intriguing how Often secular professors don't really know what to do with this because it's a fourth century. uh, It's 13 chapters that are one continual prayer to God. And in chapter two, there's this unique thing where uh, when Augustine is trying to illustrate, when he, he wants to go back to his childhood, his teenage years, and he had a lot of material to illustrate his own corruption, troubles, and he picks out a story where when he, in essence, was in high school, him and some of his friends, they're about 16, they break into their neighbor's pear garden and they steal his pears and they just destroy the pears. And you read it on the surface, I remember my English professor not knowing what to do with this, because it just sounds so like, what is the big deal? You You just stole some pears, who cares? Boys will be boys, won't they? And he was utterly missing the point that Augustine was making. Augustine was showing that in essence, he was recreating the fall in his own life. He was saying the point, the reason why we broke in and stole the pears is not because we were hungry. The whole point is we we did it because we were told not to. And that there's something in our heart that just rebels and we will do what we're told not to do. And all of you know this. Like if you're honest, there's probably things on your to-do list right now that you are resisting just because someone in your life, maybe it's your wife or your boss or your neighbor, has suggested that you do it. Why do we resist? You know, our kids are moving out of the... Toddler, our last one, is moving out of the toddler stage, and I'm going through a series of mornings because this has been one of my favorite life stages. And uh, we're wondering what to do with a lot of the just stuff. And so we're looking at the kids' costumes because a couple of our kids love to dress up in costumes every single day. And I nostalgically, and looking back, my Six-year-old son, when he was three and four, he would dress up in different superhero costumes every single day. I mean, why waste? <laughs> I mean, Halloween is just one day a week. I mean, I mean one day a year—that's not enough time. And so every single day, and so there was a four-month span where every single day he was Batman. And so we go to Walmart, and he comes strutting in, and you know, puffy chest Batman suit, kind of strutting in like patrons do not fear the <laughs> cape crusader is here and you know people look at us and they laugh and then you know teachers would you know, say, know. You, you pick your battles so every day we're just gonna dress up like Batman and uh, I back when we had Barnes and Nobles in the world uh, we had found out that the Barnes and Noble was gonna do an 80th birthday party for Batman And so got excited, we're going to plan this day where we're going to go to Batman's birthday party and lay out the Batman costume and then wake him up to get him ready to go to the party. And would you believe, actually, every one of you parents would believe, for the first time in three months, do you know the outfit that he doesn't want to wear? (laughs) We wake up and we don't want to be Batman. We want to be Spider-Man today it's like this clash of the titans you're about to see the giant beast of who's going to make Batman why do we not want to be Batman today just because you're being told to be Batman and in every three year old heart is the same bent that we resist being told what to do and that's from birth and David is recognizing that this this twistedness has been in me and if you're going to experience the real power of repentance you cannot ever be in denial of the cruelty you are capable of and one of the problems in our world is people will gladly boast about how they would never mock uh, someone of another ethnicity but they surely will mock someone of another political persuasion and not seeing that those are not different things you're the same the same seed is in you And so none of us should hear the stories of uh, Representative Crane or the other representative and kind of scoff because if you've ever lusted, the same seed is in your heart too. It just hasn't been given fruit in that way. And so the doctrine of original sin is the same seeds dwell in us all. And we have to see we all have that threefold problem, that legal problem, that moral problem, that internal problem. So we have to see ourselves as we really are. But then the next thing, notice, David has to see himself, who he really hurt. You know, look at verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know, part of the background of the story is David, at this point, he's, he's gone through the deep, a long, slow, steady, faithful rise up to the place of political power, and is it the king, he gets to the place, and then now um, he sends the army out, he's going to stay at home, uh, he's lounging on the roof, he sees a woman bathing that's not his wife, he wants her, he takes her, uh, he sets up the scenario so her husband, uh, she gets pregnant, uh, sets up the scenario so the husband will come back, so he can kind of uh, cover it over, husband won't go in and sleep at his house because he's got too much honor. My men are on the battlefield sleeping in tents. I'm not going to go home and sleep in my bed. So David arranges where he gets left high and dry in the next battle, gets murdered, takes her, and then doesn't think anything of it until the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him. And then this is the response. But notice when David says to the Lord against you, and you only have I sinned. How do you think some other people in that story might have heard that? How do you think Bathsheba's father might have thought about that statement? Or maybe Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, who was one of David's counselors, who became the primary advisor for Absalom during his rebellion. I wonder how he would have heard that statement. Or I wonder what Uriah's mom would have thought if she heard against you and you only Have I sinned? So what's David doing here? Is he negating his responsibility or is he actually going to the deepest person that he sinned against? I think the only way that the repentance can really be powerful is he just he has to see how deep the problem goes, not just in him, but who he really hurt See, the central problem with his sin is that it was ultimately, it wasn't just against Bathsheba, Uriah, Bathsheba's family, Uriah's family, the people, his responsibility as king. It was also ultimately a sin against God. God had set all the moral standards that David had broken. Standards of truth purity, the honor and integrity uh, to honor people's lives. It was God's word that he had despised. You know, it was God's image that he's sinning against. I mean, Bathsheba is not just an object for him to use. She's an image bearer. Uriah was not just an obstacle to be eliminated. He was an image bearer. Joab was not just a tool to accomplish David's purposes. He's an image bearer. The people in Jerusalem now are going to become jaded and cynical because this poisonous cloud of cynicism is going to set in on the people and all of these image bearers who are being violated. And it's ultimately God's honor that's disgraced. It's his purposes that are disrupted. I have sinned, David says, against you. Ultimately, Deep change happens when you see just how deep that goes and who you sinned against. But then now, what does he have to do the next stage? First stage, right? right, you've got to see how, who you really are, ultimately who you have sinned against. But then now, what are you going to do so you can experience real repentance? There are certain things you got to express. So notice he's got to express. This is what you have to say. Notice again in verse 4, that full and free confession. There's no more blame shifting. There's no more excuses. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't rationalize. You know, repentance begins when the excuses stop. Healing begins when excuses end. And notice David doesn't make all the excuses. Notice all the things he calls. It's my iniquity, my sin, my rebellion. I've got blood guiltiness in 14. Blood is on my hands. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't rationalize. And in some ways in his world, he probably could have rationalized it. I mean, you kind of do a thought experiment. Imagine David, um, I don't know what uh, second century pre-BC ancient Near Eastern kings did to kind of um, unwind or where they hung out, but imagine, you know, if they all got together at like camel bucks for a coffee to talk about how their reigns were going and you got the king of Persia and you got the king of Assyria and the Philistine king and the king of Tyre and Sidon and then David's there among all his contemporaries. And imagine him telling this story. Do you know how they all would have responded? Yeah? So? <laughs> big deal? That's just the perks. I mean, that's the perks of being a king. I mean, if you can't just see a woman you want and take her and knock off her husband, and I mean, what's the big deal? That's just divine. That's That's the right of the king. None of them would have had a problem with what David would have had done. And so he could have rationalized it. This, this is just what kings do. But he doesn't. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't rationalize. He doesn't excuse. Excuse. He owns. And then notice the thing he starts to seek in verse 7. Look at all the things. Purge me. Wash me. Let me hear. Hide your face. Look and see some of the, even see some of the poetic beauty of the passage. There's a beautiful movement in verse 2. Notice it's blot out, wash, cleanse. And then starting in verse 7, we're moving backwards with purge. That's the same word for cleanse. Cleanse, wash, blot out by 9. Going down and back. And what does he say? I need to be clean. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. That's the structural heart of the whole movement. The whole movement is culminating here. Clean. I need to be made Clean. This is where bara create in the beginning God bara God created that I need the creator to come and recreate create in me a clean heart and then renew a right spirit within me notice the dynamics of the spirit your spirit with me and the spirit that's in me the spirit with me creating me a clean heart renew right spirit within me cast me not away from your presence. Do you notice David recognizes that he's caught? He's caught in a contradiction. He's caught in a tension. See, on the one hand, he needs God to hide his face from his sins. But on the other hand, he desperately doesn't want God to cast him away from his presence. So how can both these things, I need, I need you to stay with me, but I need you not to look at me at what I've done. And he's He's caught. And it was, cast me not away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. See, deep down, David knows that ultimately I have to have this. You know, I love you think about all the things that David doesn't say. Don't take from me. He doesn't say, don't take the crown from me. Don't take the throne from me. Don't take the army from me. Don't take the treasury from me. Don't take the loyalty from me. Don't take the kingdom from me. And say any of those. It's don't take your presence. Because he knows if I have everything in this world and don't have that, I have nothing. But if I have nothing in this world and still have this, I have nothing everything. Don't take your presence and then restore to me the joy of your salvation. Return the joy. Notice, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You know, I hear that even as I hear that, I wonder how God heard that. David's asking, let the bones you have broken rejoice. Reminds me of when I was a youth minister and, I was 20 and working at church as youth minister and one of my I think I'd been on the job about a month and one of my first cases of pastoral counseling is the chairman of our deacons brought his daughter in and wanted to talk to me and they just found out that she, uh, she was in 11th grade, just found out she was pregnant. And I remember she w- looked at me with just this anger and she said, "How could God do this to me?" And that was the first case of pastoral counseling I've ever done and I didn't really know how to respond, but do you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. God, how could God do this to you? Um, do we need the birds and the bees talk? And I wonder what David says here, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I don't know, there's shrapnel everywhere. There's broken bones everywhere because of David's sin. And the question is how can they be remade, healed again? Now this happened in the first service as this this time I grossly misallocated my time. <laughs> And I still have three pages of notes left. And I normally do about six to seven minutes per page. So we had to cut off right in half in the first service. We're going to cut off right in half before we get back to the restoration. And the question is, all right, well, where can David go? How does he? How can he find wholeness? How can he be put back together again? And in this passage, there are hints and echoes. I mean, even the question of, of uh, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a branch that was used to dip into the lamb's blood to swipe over the doorframe for the Passover. And then it became used as a cleaning tool in, in Israeli houses. If you cleaned with the hyssop branch, the idea is it can purge you from the inside so there's 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 echoes but the great tension is how can God be both verse one gracious loving merciful and verse four justified and blameless in his judgments how can he be both how can he do both how can he hide his face from my sin but still not cast me out of his presence how can these things come together And ultimately, David, in this way, he doesn't quite know how this can be solved. How is it that God can show him mercy, deal his legal trouble, his moral trouble, and his internal trouble? But then there's starting to become more hints. So you can look at the prophecy to Zechariah that Zechariah gives. In chapter 12 to the exiles, it says, on this day, on the day that I come to bring restoration, I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, and I will hear their pleas for mercy. You'll cry out for mercy, and I will hear, so that when you look on me, the one whom you've pierced, you will mourn. So, sorry, you're going to look on me, the one who's been pierced, and you're going to mourn. The house of David will mourn. The house of Nathan will, will mourn. And then in verse 13, chapter 13, on that day there will be opened up a fountain for the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And that fountain will cleanse them from their sins and their transgressions. So looking, longing, when will it be? How will the Lord work in such a way so we look upon the one who has been pierced and that piercing will open up a fountain so that we can be washed and we can be cleansed? That's why on the cross... It's so important for John to tell us that on the cross, when Jesus died, the centurion stuck a spear into his side and it wasn't just blood, but it was water that was flowing because here a fountain now has been opened. So it was open when Christ died, the God-man made flesh, who in the fullness of time, he bears the full weight of all of these problems. He bears the rebellion. He bears the punishment of guilt because the wages of this sin is death. He bears it. And then when he died, a fountain of mercy was opened up. And so now all who come to that fountain, all sinners who uh, own their sin, who admit it, and to come to the fountain of mercy, it flows and they can be washed and restored and made new. And Paul celebrates the same thing in Colossians chapter 2, when he's talking about our legal debt, and you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, uh, God has made alive with him. How? He forgave all of your trespasses. How could he? How could he blot them out? By canceling the record of debt that stood against you with his legal demands. He set it aside and nailed it to the cross. So now we bear it no more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that... Your son came to solve the ultimate problem that David is wrestling with. What do we do with our sins? Where can we go to have our soul washed clean? And so we ask that you help us. We ask that you help us to come. I pray that no one here would think, well, I can't come because I'm too dirty. They would know that that is the point of the fountain. The fountain was open to bring cleansing. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.